You are tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, we have just come off the anniversary of the massive earthquake in Fukushima, Japan, that damaged a nuclear power plant 11 years ago. The company TEPCO announced that it plans to discharge radiated water into the ocean starting next year. Some Pacific Rim countries are concerned about whether that can be done safely. A scientific team from across the Pacific, including from here at the University of Hawaii, has just issued a review of Japan's plan based on what's available publicly. The Pacific Islands Forum is made up of 18 independent Pacific Island countries. Uh, It asked the group to provide input on the plan release. The scientists are asking the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, for additional information, but it provided its technical review to the forum just this week. We talked to Robert Richmond, director of the UH Kiwala Research Laboratory, who is part of that team. I've been working in the Pacific Islands for 43 years now and extensively throughout Micronesia, and I've done a lot of work at that interface between science and policy for a number of the Pacific Island leadership groups, including the Pacific Island Forum, APIL, the Association of Pacific Island Legislators, and the Micronesian Island Forum that used to be the Council of Micronesian Chief Executives. So um, they reached out to me as a marine biologist to be able to see um, if I would be able to help them on this issue. And I actually do have experience um, with radiation and associated issues. Uh, as an undergraduate student, I spent two years as a research assistant in uh, the radiation biology and biophysics department at the University of Rochester Medical School using crayfish, um, the freshwater equivalent of lobster, as accumulators of radioactive ruthenium-106 from nuclear power plants. And if there was any leakage, um, these are called um, uh, indicator organisms. They actually accumulate radioactive ruthenium in their gut, and you could detect if there was any leakage from an upstream nuclear power plant doing it. So I had experience in using organisms as indicators of radiation concerns. I actually did my doctoral dissertation research at Anahuitak Atoll in the Marshall Islands, which was ground zero for the nuclear testing program during the 1950s. And so I got a chance to not only see the impacts of radiation issues tied to the nuclear testing program on environments and ecosystems, and this uh, means coral reefs, but also on the communities that were affected by it as well. So um, when they reached out to me, as uh, you saw, there's a total of five of us. It's an international group, and I asked if I would be willing to uh, support them on it. I uh, gladly agreed to offer my expertise to help. Yeah, and talk about the other experts. I mean, you've got folks from Woods Hole, from um, Monterey, California. Yep, Australia from University of Adelaide. So it's a really nice blend of experienced scientists and researchers Um, I come in from the marine biology, marine ecology side with some background in radiation and uh, effects on ecosystems. Uh, Dr. Bessler from uh, Woods Hole is an expert specifically on radiation in the ocean and in water. And so he um, is uh, both strong in uh, biology and chemistry of radionuclides. We also have people with regulatory experience, people that deal with policy issues. So it's a very well-rounded group that uh, are very complementary in the skill set that we have. And in our meetings, we've been meeting for um, close to two months now. I have to say how really impressed I am, not only with the expertise and the uh, nature, the broad kind of expertise that's represented in the group, but the way in which the group is very compatible, very focused, and very um, effective and efficient in being able to get through the challenges to address the express needs of the Pacific Island Forum and the members. And so, uh, based on what, based on the information that Japan has provided about you know the process of discharging this uh, contaminated water, uh, you know, w- what's the conclusion of this group of scientists? Uh, we just did our first um, set of reviews for the Pacific Island Forum, and our recommendation is that it's premature to sign off on the plan that's being um, proposed. Um, there, the international. Uh, Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, has been involved in it, and they have top-notch people and top-notch scientists. But as we were reviewing the data, at least the data that were available to us, uh, we came to the conclusion that there's insufficient information to support the plan as it's been proposed. And that's our biggest concern right now is we see major data gaps. We did a download of all of the available information and came up with a series of questions to ask TEPCO, that's the Tokyo electrical power organization and the um, 
IAEA about the data upon which they're making these decisions. And so far, we haven't gotten all the answers we need to go forward, but there are a number of concerns that have come up. A lot of the focus has been on the chemistry of some of the radionuclides. So when you look at the amount of water, they've got close to a thousand tanks holding the radioactive uh, contaminated cooling water. And uh, they have a, a process called advanced liquid processing system, or they call it the ALPS. That's basically reverse osmosis and some chemical binding and chelating, but it doesn't take out tritium, and tritium does matter. It's uh, Tritium is one of the radionuclides. It uh, has a relatively short half-life, um, but it's not just the chemical nature. Tritium is hydrogen, so they say, well, if you put it in the ocean, uh, hy- uh, water is H2O hydrogen, and two hydrogens and oxygen. But the problem is that tritium can be what's called organically bound, meaning it can be picked up by plankton in the water, and from the plankton it can be ingested by fish, um, shellfish, as well as pelagic fish. And so for that reason, many of these things that are viewed simply as a chemical process have ignored some of the biological elements that come with it, and that's one of my areas of expertise, is seeing how things get into biological systems. And for many of these radionuclides, it depends on um, the kind of energy that they have. Um, there's three kinds of emitters, alpha, beta, and gamma emitters. Even the um, beta emitters, which tritium is, it's less of a concern if it's outside the body because skin um, and clothing is enough to block it. But if you ingest it or inhale it, then it becomes a much different issue as well. And there's just enough questions remaining on exactly what's going on of the 1,000 tanks that are filled with this radioactive water less than 20% have actually been sampled for what radionuclides are there. Um, There's a list of around 62 different radioactive um, uh, chemicals, radionuclides that are contained in the water. But it really makes a difference in how you sample the water. If it's a huge tank, did you take it from the top, the bottom? Is there organic material in it? Was it fresh water? Was it seawater? So as we're trying to work our way through the data, we're not saying that what they're proposing now is completely ridiculous, but what we're saying is for all the data we've seen so far, there are two issues, main issues. One is the amount of data and the specific data that are available to our view right now is insufficient to make the judgment that it's safe. And number two, are there better ways of going forward? And that's taking the view that challenges can also be opportunities. This is not the first nuclear disaster and it obviously will not be the last. But is this an opportunity to learn how to do things better, to get away from just ocean dumping and look at ways in which it can be done in a more sustainable and a safer way for both the environment and the people who depend on the environment? Now, my understanding is that uh, they're going to run out of space this year, which is why they want to start discharging the contaminated water uh, next year. And I believe this group, you know, says that, you know, the practice of you know, having this stuff sit around and and um, uh, treating it to some extent uh, will minimize its, I guess, damage to the environment. Yeah, so, you know, the issue of letting it sit around, things will get better. Um, that's true for things that have a short half-life. So for radioactive iodine and for uh, tritium and others, they have a fairly short half-life. And so, yeah, they'll um, begin to lose energy over time. But there are a number of uh, radionuclides that have a longer half-lives, so like cesium and strontium. Both of them are about 30 years, I think. Uh, if I remember correctly, strontium is about 27 years. Cesium, I think, is 30 years. And so that means you really need to keep them sitting around for 27 to 30 years for them to lose half the energy that they have right now. So the issue is that, uh, once again, it's the volume, it's the concentration, and it's the specific radionuclides. There are some radionuclides with longer half-lives, those with shorter. And the argument is that they're running out of space. There are ways of being able to perhaps reduce the volume without releasing it into the ocean. And there's a number of ways to using this ALP system, which is kind of a combination of reverse osmosis and a chemical binding will do some of it. You know, there's other ways of doing it too biologically. Um, they raise oysters and clams in that area as aquaculture products, a pretty good sized clam. One of the ones that they raise there these things can pump about 50 gallons per clam per day, and they will accumulate some of the radionuclides that are there, especially if they're added plankton to it for this um, biological binding, this organic binding. 
So there are different techniques for being able to reduce the volume of water. And I know that's what part of their advanced liquid processing system is uh, going to do. But if you just do a Google Earth um, search for that site, um, there are other sites outside of the fence in which they could store more water as well. And so we're a little bit concerned that perhaps this idea of running out of room is a way to kind of create this urgency to start releasing it into the ocean which is where we're concerned right now with the data that's been provided right. and the concerns that have been expressed. You're basically saying not so fast. Uh, are you proposing anything in particular as a group? You know, being a typical scientist, we're data-driven. We're trying to look at all the information that's available. There have been other uh, views of it, and uh, they said, you know, in the data that we've got, we came up with a list of alternatives to say, have you examined instead of dilution, you know, the concentration? Have you examined um, things like geothermal injection? Have you examined some of the other options that are there, uh, venting off uh, the tritium gas, et cetera? And so right now, um, there are a couple of things that we've seen documents that are provided that have discounted them uh, due to the associated cost involved. Um, But this is not supposed to be just a massive dump, you know, starting next year. That's when they plan to start it. But the decommissioning of the Fukushima nuclear power plant is going to take decades for them to clean up all of the problems that are associated with it. And our view is that what may look like it's the cheapest route in the short term may end up being more expensive in the long term. So um, the concern right now is, you know, give us the data that you have. Um, I think it was very smart of the Pacific Island Forum to request this additional outside help. You know, mm-hmm. none of us are tied to any element other than to do good science. That was Bob Richman, marine researcher and executive director of the UH Kiwalo Laboratory, talking to us about being tapped to provide input on Japan's plan to begin discharging uh, radiation-contaminated water into the ocean next year. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking at a little bit of French history in our islands. When you think of foreign involvement in the Kingdom of Hawaii, the United States is probably first to mind, followed by Great Britain and maybe even Russia, but probably not France. The French generally took a more laissez-faire approach back in the day. In fact, when the first Frenchman to set foot on our islands, Commodore Jean-Francois uh, de Galoup, uh, Count of La Perouse uh, landed on Maui. He did not claim the island for France. He instead declared, "What right have Europeans to land uh, to lands their inhabitants have worked with the sweat of their brows, and which for centuries have been the burial place of their ancestors?" But that attitude did not always prevail. During a little-known incident in 1849, a contingent of French Marines sacked part of Honolulu. For today's quiz, we want to know the name of that event. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NareedHawaii.com.
Lawmakers and community leaders continue to look for solutions to the access deer overpopulation problem on Maui. One business that harvests and sells access deer meat, uh, Maui Nui Venison, released step three of their four-step plan for growth this month. The Conversations, Russell Subiono was curious about how the business plan will contribute to reducing the deer population on the Valley Isle. He sat down with Maui Nui Venison CEO Jake Muse to get his insight. You sent out two emails sharing your steps one and two of your plan for growth. The first part was the survey of deer populations. What did your survey find? So the survey found that there was 46,743 deer in that approximately 130,000 acre area from Pa'ia to Ulupalakua. Mm-hmm. And that was funded by Maui County and, and is probably one of the first really great pieces of data that that Maui County has, and especially Maui has to say like, okay, what's like, we've clarified the problem. Like, what do we now do about it? And there's lots of great population dynamic information about access here. Like we know how much growth we're going to see. So that was like the first big step to say like, okay, we, we know how many deer we have and, and the subsequent steps help us understand like what next moves are. Is there a number of what the ideal population size should be? Should it be like half that or closer to, you know, like 10,000? Hmm. That's a really good question. I think, I think probably the best part of that is that's not for us to answer. Okay. So each landowner finds different value in different densities. Some landowners that are trying to grow lettuce and avocado trees want no deer. And some landowners that have see a lot of value in them uh, as a function of recreational hunting or other, they want like a particular density. I think everybody can agree that there's far too many right now. There is going to be a huge effort across Maui by the large landowners to put up what could be tens of millions of dollars of fencing so that they have a choice. If they don't, they don't have a choice. So I think they realize the writing's on the wall there that that has to be a part of the process. And the ranchers also realize that they think about managing access here like taking water out of a bucket and it just continually filling in like with a little scooper. Access here are like extremely habitual in how they, like in their habitat preference, doesn't matter what the ranches do, they can harvest tens of thousands of deer off their property. The access deer are going to continually fill into the best habitat, which are the large ranches. Yeah. So the ranches know that they ultimately have the responsibility and the burden of managing like the larger populations as a whole. But I think if I had to answer your question, it's just my personal opinion, but I'd say it's about half the current population would be something manageable for community and food systems. So let's call it 30,000 deer. I know at this time last year, Senator Kalani English was just talking about deer could be getting on to Kahului Airport. And then uh, earlier this year, Senator DeCoit said, oh, it's happening. Have you been seeing those kinds of things too, where deer are starting to get into places where that might have been like the last frontier for them? Yeah. So with Maui especially, the population on Maui is still very much emerging and establishing itself. Unlike Molokai and Lanai, where that population has been around for, you know, 60 to 100 years, mm-hmm. the population on Maui is still very much growing. And so that means two things are happening. One, they're starting to, like, establish themselves in new areas. But probably more importantly, they're getting to greater densities in the areas that they already are in. So they're having to make of more dra- drastic decisions as a function of food and home range so what you're seeing close to the airport is i heard that three or four years ago was like 10 or 15 animals is now several hundred animals and they're running out of like space to live and they're starting to move around and they're getting more stressed out so we're going to continue to see that on maui you know indefinitely until we can figure out how to balance population one part of the solution that's been proposed is the community helping with harvesting animals but I know it's not an easy process. Can you just talk a little bit about what steps you as a business have to walk through to be able to sell access deer meat? So in order to sell deer meat or afford it to enter like commerce in any form, it has to fall under USDA inspection. And so that USDA process, they don't have anything written for a wild animal or wild harvesting. So everything you do has to follow the same rules and regulations that would come in a brick and mortar facility, but in the field. So everything from like being able to view that the animal's healthy, 
how that animal, they call it rendering, but how that animal dies, all of the processing, all of the food safety, that's something that all has to happen in the field is highly, highly regulated. And then on top of it, axis deer fall into this interesting category called voluntary species. And voluntary species for the USDA requires even additional oversight. So for venison, you need both a inspector on site and a USDA veterinarian, which is typically the frontline supervisor for the state. We have to have both of those people with us at all times because we fall into this very interesting category called voluntary. So on top of being able to follow all of the regulations that happen in a brick and mortar in the field, then on top of that, you also have to have two USDA staff uh, with you at all times. The kicker is you also have to pay for them. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, So the hurdles to get wild animal into commerce is definitely a difficult one for sure. I think a lot of people might come to the conclusion that, you know, oh, why don't we just get a bunch of local hunters out there to help? What are your thoughts on how the community could potentially participate? So a couple things there. One, I think people underestimate how much hunters are already doing recreationally. Mm-hmm. We just finished that large survey on Maui from Pa'iei to Ulapalakua, and the lowest density areas of access deer were the public hunting areas. So I think they're already doing a really great job in the places that they can. And I think there's also a, you know, a bit of a misconception as well with these private landowners. The private landowners, at least all of the large landowners that we work with, they do an extraordinary job with recreational hunting. Essentially, every single day after work hours from three o'clock till dark and then every single weekend, they have a hunter in every single area. And then we only operate at night, and so we're hunting every single night. So I think, I think people underestimate how much hunters are already doing to like, participate and, and help manage the issue. Seems like the deer kind of know where the public places are too, right? They're starting to figure out to stay away from those places. Oh, I mean, highly intelligent and yeah. highly adaptable. We're dealing with one of the more intelligent deer species on the planet, so that doesn't help our cause. Going back real quick to your harvesting method, you said you go out at nighttime. How many are you kind of able to harvest on the average night? Field crews typically are nine to 10 people. That excludes the two USDA guys. Mm -hmm. And we need that many people for a couple of reasons. One, we're bringing our mobile processing facility to the areas that we're working in, to within the vicinity. And the USDA only allows us a three-hour performance period. So we basically have to be able to find harvest, transport back to our processing facility, clean, like get them in a freezer, all within a three-hour period. And we typically do anywhere from about 20 to like 30 deer a night in that three-hour period. And step two of your plan for growth is charting a clear path forward to help balance Maui's deer populations over the next few years. Can you share a little bit about growing your subscribers? And, And I think this is a option that you offer to your to your customers the ability to subscribe to your service so subscribers i mean one took us 10 years to figure out these harvesting systems and make them work and then who the hell knew e-commerce was going to be just as hard right, right. <laughs> like finding like ultimately our, our mission like we cannot even envision balancing populations without customers that believe in what we're doing and so subscribers do a couple things for us one their commitment every month to us is huge. It helps us better understand like how many animals we need to harvest, how much, and, and they're committed to it every month. We don't have to go like talk to them every month and convince them to buy. So that's just a huge piece of what we do. And two, we also now understand the subs- like one subscriber on average will eat about like two deer a year for us. And so we now know, okay, if we know what the populations are on the ranches we work on, and we know what we need to do there to help balance populations and inclusions from the surrounding area. We can kind of put a line in the sand that says, we need this many customers, we need this many subscribers. And then along with what we continue to do locally with our like Kamaina and Holai programs and what we'll do with some restaurants, we actually can say, yeah, we have this many people eating this many deer. We'll start to see a population decrease in the areas that we're working. For the average person listening, they don't have the resources to go out there and and help harvest animals, or if they're not on Maui, they can contribute 
to helping to reduce populations by becoming a subscriber. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's there's really good options locally for people to help support that as well. I think at a price point that works for most families. And we'd love nothing more to, than to see a huge part of our customer base like be local. And we're always committed to making sure a, a big part of what we do stays here for sure. Thank you so much for your time, Jake. Yeah, likewise, Russell. I appreciate it. That was Jake Muse, co-owner of Maui Nui Venison, talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about efforts to reduce Maui's Axis deer population. Uh, Muse noted that while there were reports that the, the COVID virus had been found in whitetail deer on the mainland last year, no cases of COVID has been found here in the island's herds. Support for HPR comes from the Sierra Club of Hawaii. For 50 years, working to help protect the island's water, air, and ecosystems, and committed to connecting people to the outdoors. Learn more about programs at sierraclubhawaii.org. HPR is hiring. Are you looking for a full-time position in a lively, highly interactive, and collaborative environment? Does being part of a mission-focused work group and fiercely independent local nonprofit sound like a match for your passions and skills? We have position openings in our membership and finance groups. Job descriptions are on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Civil Beats Reality Check today features a story about Kauai's resiliency is paying off. Reporter Brittany Light joins us this morning. Hi, Brittany. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, Kauai's not using as much oil as it used to. Yes, and it's taken a long uh, time for them to get there. But basically, the board of the island's utility set out in 2008 to pivot toward more renewable energy. And slowly but surely, they've put more and more renewable energy projects online, and now they're up to 70%. So they aren't feeling quite the pain that some of the other islands are at the gas pump, or or, or they're looking at the uh, utility bills. Exactly. So right now, as we all know, you know, the U.S. has put these Russian oil sanctions that are affecting, going to be affecting, we think, um, power bills. So our monthly utility bills, you know, could increase as much as 20% for residents on Maui and the Big Island. Utility bills could increase as much as 10% on Oahu. That's based on HECO predictions. But on Kauai, where the grid, again, is powered mostly by renewables, residents are better protected from the whims of the oil market uh, bills there, KIUC is predicting, will still rise, but between 2 and 10%, they think. That's about $4 to $20 per month for a residential member based on average electricity usage. So, you know, they still will feel a little bit of a, a pinch, you know, when they get their bills in the coming months, but not as badly as the rest of the state. So we can look at Kauai is a potential model then for, you know, going forward. Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, there are so many good reasons to try to wean off of fossil fuels. Um, you know, reducing the effects of climate change certainly is, is a big one. But another one is to kind of um, shield your, your customers or your members of the utility from having to deal with these huge unpredictable spikes in the price of oil. So now roughly 30% of the energy grid on Kauai is powered by oil. Um, so, so that portion, that 30%, you know, the cost of that will go up. But again, some of the islands are dealing with 
a, quite a bit larger percentage of of their energy being powered by by oil still. Um, so you know, again, they're just going to see higher prices when they when they open their utility bill. Well, so Kauai's sitting pretty. Um, and, you know, I know the mayor had his uh, state of the county address yesterday. Um, I mean, he must be feeling pretty good about where the island is. Yeah. And, you know, Mayor Derek Kawakami, his his first elected office actually was on the utility board of directors. He was elected to that in 2006. And he was um, the chairman of the committee that in 2008 set this big, bold renewable energy goal, the utility's first big renewable energy goal. They said, we want to get to 50% renewables by 2023. They ended up surpassing that goal. They beat it. They got there sooner. Um, But at the time, it was a big deal. Nobody knew how it would be possible to get there. Um, But And at the time, I think about 8% of the island was powered by renewables. So so there was a huge gap to close, but, but they did get there. And so what happens then going forward? Well, what happens going forward is, you know, continuing to wean off fossil fuels. And it it seems like it's going to be more challenging. So far, getting to the 70% threshold, the utility has had the benefit of still having some oil-powered energy. Um, And so that can kind of kick in at night. Uh, when the sun isn't shining, after the battery stored power is used up, um, you know, that's, that's when oil becomes really important. So going forward, if, you know, they're going to continue to forge ahead and, and get rid of oil completely or, or nearly completely, they're going to have to figure out what to do, how to continue to provide seamless energy, um, you know, when there are multiple cloudy days, for example. Um, and so that's the goal. And again, they, they don't know how to get there. Um, but we've heard this before. <laughs> they didn't know how to get there, you know, years ago when they set this ambitious renewable energy goal, but they did. Yeah. So. And, you know, there's other things in development, right? There's wind energy and wave energy. So I guess we'll just see how, uh, how <clears throat> the, techno- <clears throat> excuse me, the technology shapes up. But thanks so much, Brittany. Thanks for having me, Catherine. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org. Next on Being, Kate DiCamillo, a writer beloved by children, speaks to the former eight-year-old in us all on bearing the way yearning and possibility, wonder and danger live so close side by side in this life with appropriate doses of raucous laughter and necessary tears. I'm Krista Tippett. Join us. Beginning Sunday morning at 10. I'm Stephen Dubner, and the next Freakonomics Radio, how can you tell if your good idea will scale up? There is no single quality that distinguishes ideas that have the potential to succeed. The economist John List is here to help. Look, my book is kind of the common sense checklist. The voltage effect is meant to brighten your life and society. Will it? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. The University of Hawaii Manoa campus has become the latest target of catalytic converter thieves. Some 19 cases so far, just two and a half months into the spring semester. That's compared with 20 for all of last year, though there were probably fewer cars there. The precious metals that the converters contain uh, make it valuable to scrap dealers, and the crime has gone unchecked as lawmakers failed to enact measures last year to discourage the stealing. State Farm's Amy Harris tells us the insurance company began tracking its claims two years ago when it noticed an uptick nationally. It was alarmed at what it saw. So we really started tracking it in 2020, and we kind of looked back at the 2019 data because we had, you know, started receiving more claims on it. And so ever since then, we run it about every six months just to kind of see what, what the trend is. Is it still 
you know, happening? Is it increasing? Are we staying about the same? And so when we pulled the, the data for 2021, we were shocked because nationally since 2019, it's over 1,100% increase. In 2019, we spent about $4.6 million for just over 2,500 catalytic converter theft claims nationally. And then in 2021, that number jumped from 4.6 million to 62.6 million, um, and that included just over 32,000 catalytic converter th- uh, theft claims nationally. I mean, that's pretty stunning. I don't know what else you pay out for, but it's, it's like an epidemic. Right. Yeah. It's uh, and it, like I said, it, it's happening everywhere. There's no states that are not having this happen, right? There's some that are more than others, but it is a trend that we just see continuing to rise. We don't know that it's going to slow down anytime soon. But yeah, it's it's interesting to go back and just kind of look at the numbers and break it down by state and see how often this is happening and how much it's actually costing. We heard the stories, you know, anecdotally, people posting, hey, you know, some guy just crawled under my car and within a a few minutes he got my, my cat and was gone. Uh, and yep. and there has been legislation introduced. It didn't go anywhere last year here in Hawaii, uh, and they're trying it again. But what are other states doing? We have heard about some states doing the legis- legislation that requires registration for catalytic converters and for auto salvage parts. There's also new anti-theft devices that are selling like hotcakes because um, people want to install them. That makes it you know a little bit harder for the thieves to take them. And, you know, part of the issue is that anyone can sell a catalytic converter to an auto part salvage business, and there's no tracking or registration to know where that part's coming from. And so things that we also are hearing and kind of recommending is considering to etch your name or your phone number or your license plate number, something on the actual catalytic converter so that it could be identified and linked back to you if yours is stolen. Well, how do Hawaii's numbers stack up with the trend across the nation? They are in the top 50% across the nation. They've got the number 24 spot. And so looking back at the numbers for what that looks like, so 2019, we had eight claims uh, for theft of catalytic converters for just over $22,000. 2021, we pulled that data again. So the eight jumped up to 310, and the 22,500 now is $678,000 for Hawaii. Oh my goodness. So it's really taking a, um, a hit. I mean, you know, because we have had uh, people, you know, talk about they've they've been hit more than once. You know, say so they pay yeah. $1,000 or whatnot to, to replace it, and then the thieves come again. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that everywhere. It's crazy, the numbers that we're seeing. But, you know, for the owner of the car, that can obviously be a costly crime just because, you know, you've got potential loss of work. You can't drive anywhere. You're finding and paying for alternate transportation. And then, you know, if you don't have comprehensive coverage, you're paying thousands of dollars to get your car fixed. So it's it's just a huge nuisance, and it's, you know, it's impacting people tremendously that are having theirs taken out. And so what do you advise car owners, you know, what do you advise people to do to prevent being a victim? Yeah, so there's a few things that we recommend. If you can, park inside of a garage, especially at night. Um, if you're out and about, make sure that you're parking in a public place that has a lot of cars and make sure it's a well-lit area. Um, if, you're, if your vehicle must be parked in a driveway, consider installing motion sensor lights or security lights that might you know, scare them off if they, if they hop on when they're there. Um, to protect yourself too with coverage, just make sure that you speak to your insurance agent um, and know what your auto policy covers. Um, Comprehensive coverage will cover theft of your entire vehicle or its parts. And so that's just something that, you know, you want to talk to your agent about. Everybody's needs are kind of different and, you know, the the policies are different. But um, we recommend just reaching out to your agent at least once a year, making sure you have all the coverage that you need for your home, your property. Um, You know, auto here in this case is, is big. If someone steals your catalytic converter, I mean, so does your insurance go up? So it's gonna, that's going to vary. It's going to depend on what your policy covers, what your deductible is. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, that's just why we really encourage people to reach out at least once a year and just have that conversation with their agents just to make sure that they know everything that their policy includes and covers. And uh, what can you tell us about, uh, you know, the states that have passed laws? What seems to be, I guess, the most effective in um, putting a damper on these thefts? 
Can you say? I don't have the specific data by state. It's just trends that we're seeing and we're hearing kind of more and more about it as the thefts continue to rise, that more states are talking about it um, and hoping to get some sort of legislation in place. We did just hear recently, too, that um, they're, they're changing the crime to be a felony. Um, and so that may deter some thieves. Uh, think twice about stealing it if they know they're going to be hit with a felony. Um, but yeah, we're just, it's different for every state, um, but we are hearing more and more um, ways that they're, they're trying to combat this. And now I have a very low car, so it would be very difficult for someone to crawl under and, and steal it without a, you know, a lot of hassle. Uh, but I guess that would be another reason for people to go to electric cars. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you bring up a, a lower car, but, you know, we've seen people put it on a little jack and take it. Um, you know, they can have them out in about a minute. And so it doesn't take long at all. Um, we, in some of the data we saw, um, you know, a lot of times they target a car like a Prius because it's lighter, um, but no car is off limit. So, you know, we've seen... Priuses, we've seen Escalades, right? So um, just because you have a larger vehicle doesn't mean they're not going to attempt to take it. If you're parked in, a, like I said, a, a, an area that doesn't have a lot of light and the opportunity is there, thieves are going to take what they can get. So I'll be curious to see what the data looks like for the first part of 2022. With the you know cost of living increases and everything that's going up, um, I can't imagine that this is going to go down. Um, I think we're going to, you know, see the same sort of trend, but I'm curious to see what those numbers are, are going to look like. That was Amy Harris of State Farm Insurance talking about the recent surge of thefts of catalytic converters. Hawaii ranks 24th in the number of cases across the country. Uh, state lawmakers are considering legislation that was introduced last year to try and make it more difficult for thieves to pawn those parts. In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you to name a 19th century incident in which a group of French Marines launched a raid on Honolulu. The date was August 1849 when Admiral Louis Tromelin arrived in Honolulu Harbor with two ships carrying the Marines and artillery. Soon after, he caught wind of allegations of American missionaries persecuting Catholics and the Hawaiian monarchy imposing a high import tariff on French brandy. Outraged, Tromelin drew up a list of 10 demands on behalf of the French government and submitted them to Kamehameha III. When the demands went ignored for three days, Tromelin brought ashore 160 Marines and two cannons. The men easily captured Fort Honolulu, destroying all of its weapons in the process. They also captured the king's yacht, which was sent to Tahiti and never returned. The French force withdrew after 10 days, returning the fort to Hawaii. The French government considered the actions justified and never apologized or paid reparations for the Tromlin affair, which was the answer to today's backyard quiz. And if you have an idea for a backyard quiz for us, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the exhibit Treasures of Devotion, Human Connection in Secular and Sacred Art, featuring works from the museum's permanent collection, honolulumuseum.org. On the next Fresh Air, Marie Ivanovich, who was appointed ambassador to Ukraine by President Obama and became the target of a smear campaign during the Trump administration when Trump was searching in Ukraine for dirt on Hunter Biden. After declining to pledge her loyalty to Trump, she was fired. She testified at his first impeachment. Now she has a new memoir. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point.
You know, the dropping COVID cases and the relaxing of pandemic restrictions is a green light for the arts community. HPR's Noe Tanigawa joins us with a look at what's ahead. Good morning, Noe. Hey, good morning, <laughs> Catherine. People are venturing out. When I came in today, I'm hearing Oh, I went to the opera. Oh, I saw ballet this weekend. Mm. It's happening all over the state. On Kauai, the, the, you know, they got Ekani Kapilakakos coming up. Garden Island Arts Council is on it. You, Natalie Kamau's coming up. Let's see. Her ohana March 21st there on Kauai. Check GardenIslandArts.org for all of that. And work's continuing on their new art space there on Rice Street, D2, the new art center. We should see that coming up this year. On Maui, they got that artist-to-artist thing going on. It's a concert. It's a talk story. Henry Capono has the Hawaiian Legends edition happening now with Jerry Santos. That's March 19th. And then, uh, oh, but hey, this weekend, Streetlight Cadence. I love mm, those back guys. town. <laughs> yeah, right. They're back. They're going to be on Maui very soon, the 19th. Who we know, you know what? They just had a fantastic uh, fundraiser. They did very well. Jeff Bezos, Lauren Sanchez matched every donation and gift up to 200000 Thank you. Molokai Art Center, great facilities. They are open by appointment right now. If you like to do ceramics, they got the stuff there. Hawaii Island in Hilo, Pinwheel Power. Look for it there in Kalakaua Park. East Hawaii Cultural Center got together with Hawaii Science and Technology Museum, and they had kids make pinwheels out of like recycled ramen bowls and plastic mm-hmm. boxes and stuff, and they're all spinning all day long there. It's all kinetic. They got Marisa Miyashiro and Kelly Miyazu with the EHCC Youth Programs. They got a lot of stuff all through spring. And if you're on the Kona side, Donkey Mill's got a Pu'uhonua program uh, exhibit up now. They got Claire classes running, and stars of American Ballet Theater are in Kahilo Theater tonight. Nice, nice. Jewel okay. box setting for those guys. Wow, right in Waimea. And here on Oahu, you know, Hawaii Triennial has been really happening. At a forum for the Triennial, kind of early on, the associate curator, Drew Kahuaina Broderick, was really pretty thoughtful about how art, like we've been hearing all across the state here, how that kind of art could affect and what it could mean for us in this community, for the people who do manage to go out and see it. And maybe I'll just add a comment about belief. I think the curatorial team and the organization really believes in the importance of of artists, of museums, of public spaces that support expressions of culture. That's why we're doing what we're doing, because we believe in, in the power of art. So maybe one hope for a visitor is that they walk away with a little more belief in what the arts can do for them, for their community, for the, the cities that they live in. And, um, you know, I think if 20,000 people walk away with a little more belief, maybe next iteration there'll be a little more support. Yeah, belief, belief in the arts. Hmm. You know, you, I, I ask myself, what does the power of art really feel like? Yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's got to be a give and take, really. And I I've, I've felt it, Catherine, at Foster Garden when I went to see the Ai Weiwei stuff. Yes. Okay. You know, he's mm-hmm. so famous. Any v- international visitor coming to town is going to go there to try to search this thing out. And you look for it. It's on the upper, kind of the upper portion. It's these three gnarly twisted trees. You go up to it. And it's like all these crude logs just kind of hard bolted together, big trunks and bolts, and somehow they're like holding together. And this thing is rising up against the sky. And I'm telling you, I looked at that, I thought, wow, Ukraine. Ukraine, mm. seriously, this is, nobody knows how can this, how is this working? And yet it's, um, it's there, it's powerful. And I had to lie under it and look at this thing with the sky in the backdrop, and that is an experience you cannot have in a museum anywhere else in the world. It's here. Yeah, powerful stuff, powerful mm. stuff. And, uh, you know, folks, Noe Tanigawa is bedecked with lay today. We're doing an Aloha Tuesday because <laughs> instead of an Aloha Friday because today's your last day after it nearly is. 20 years here. <laughs> And so I think folks are just wondering, well, gosh, what are you going to do? Are you going to do your art? <laughs> well, I hope so. You know, i got to thank the Violet Wong Hu Ohana for an award at, uh, through the Artists of Hawaii Now exhibit this past time. Their award is buying me a little time to see what else might be out there. And uh, then I'll have to see what, you know, I can kind of, I can 
I can read. I can write. <laughs> I can even make plates that uh, are really useful and make food look good and then go right in the dishwasher. I can also paint, so i got to see what people will pay me to do in a couple of months. <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you're, uh, you, you, you won't be uh, – you'll be busy. <laughs> you, you'll have just a whole uh, kind of banquet of things that you well, can explore. Catherine right? – as I leave, can I say, mm-hmm. I love what you're doing with the conversation. Oh. I love how you keep it rolling. You have a super team here that I have extreme personal and professional regard for. The news team, the entire staff here at HPR. Um, deepest mahalo to the people who've trusted me with their stories all of these years. It has been a privilege, truly. And to the people listening. I mean, this is why we do it. You are so worth talking with. Thank you. And thank you for everything you do every day because, let's face it, this Hawaii, the place we love, is a very kako thing. Oh, now you're going to make me cry. (laughs) Well, we certainly (laughs) thank you for, um, for everything you've done for Hawaii Public Radio and our community on each island across our, our lovely state. But uh, we, we bid you well. Thank you. All thank right. you so much. We have been talking with HPR reporter Noe Tanigawa, who was bidding aloha after nearly two decades covering stories for Hawaii Public Radio. Aloha no. Till we meet again. that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow we explore the relationship between the military and the Native Hawaiian community. What do you think about how well things are going? Call our talkback line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.